Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to the podcast. Today's sponsor is Headspace. So you've probably tried meditation before and it didn't work, right? Or maybe you felt like you were doing it wrong. If mental health is a part of your self-care plan this year, you owe it to yourself to try Headspace. It's a daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. I use it myself. It's the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Need some help falling asleep? Well, guess what? They have something for that. You need help with focus? Well, they have something for that, right? Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. So Headspace, it's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, over 60 million downloads. So social proof, it works. Take it from me. So anyway, Headspace, they make it life-changing for you. Like, honestly, your schedule, your time, anytime, anywhere. So you deserve to feel happier in Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for free one-month trial with access to Headspace. Full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Again, headspace.com slash SPI today. You know, just this morning, my son, Keone, he's 11 years old now. Uh, he stood up next to my wife, April, and literally they're almost the same height. It's a little scary, number one, because Keone was taller than I was at his age, and uh, it just makes you realize just how precious they are, but how quickly life goes by. Um, You definitely wanna savor every moment uh, as much as possible, right? So on that note, it makes sense why people get life insurance, right? I've been thinking a lot about this, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. So why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, choose Ladder. Ladder is 100% digital, no doctors, no needles, no paperwork, when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. You just need a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. And if you prefer to talk to a person, their team of licensed agents, they don't work on commission, so they'll help you and not upsell you, which is you know, always the worry with some of these kinds of things. No hidden fees, cancel at any time, get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days, and ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims, and they're rated A and A plus by AM Best. Finally, since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com slash SPI today to see if you're instantly improved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash SPI, ladderlife.com slash SPI. Today, you're about to hear a lot of behind the scenes stuff that this person tells me in this episode he's never shared before because nobody's ever asked him these questions before. And I'm really excited to bring on somebody who has been on the show before, but somebody who's came on to talk about health and sleep and how important that is for entrepreneurs. But today, we're talking specifically about the behind the scenes of how this man runs his business and how he gets things done behind the scenes of writing a traditional book and running his podcast, his video show. His name is Sean Stevenson from the Model Health Show, a fan favorite here, and I cannot wait to go behind the scenes with you. So let's talk all about it. How does the man run the show? That and more here today on the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Let's go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he's got two shoeboxes full of business ideas he has to continually say no to, Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 497 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Happy July, if you're listening to this at the time this comes out. I hope you are doing well this summer. I hope you're getting some things done and having some fun under the sun. You know what I mean? 
But anyway, today we're going to have some fun because we're talking with Sean Stevenson, literally one of the only podcasts I subscribe to because I did a huge purge a number of years ago, but I had to keep Sean's on because it was teaching me all about health, mental, and physical fitness, and I'm super grateful for him because he's a great friend of mine, and we're actually in a mastermind group together. We chat with each other every single week with a group of people, so I know all about what's been going on in his business, especially with the launch of his recent book, Eat Smarter, which I recently saw in Target. Actually, I didn't see any Pokemon cards, but I saw his book staring at me in the face, and I'm proud of him because I know how much he's worked to get there, and we're going to talk all about that work and how he runs the show today. So let's just dive right in. Here he is, Sean Stevenson from The Model Health Show. Let's go. Sean, welcome back to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, my friend. Thanks for coming back. It's my honor. Back to the future anytime, man. (laughs) <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to chat with you because you've been doing so much stuff. And last time we chatted, we talked, uh, I think your last book, Sleep Smarter, came out, which was super revolutionary for me personally. So thank you for that. And now you have a new book out called Eat Smarter. Are we going to see a whole string of books? Like, I don't know what other smarters you might have in mind, but is this like a whole line that you're starting right now? Absolutely. It's the smarter universe is what we're calling it. Yeah. I like it. Do you, can you tell us what's coming next or no? No, man, you, it's top secret right now, uh, but it's, it's okay. special. But right now, Eat Smarter is, is still just fresh out of the oven. And so that's what I'm focused on. But yes, there is definitely two more projects at least coming up. That's sweet. So tell me about the experience of writing Eat Smarter compared to Sleep Smarter. What did you take from your first experience with Sleep Smarter to then hopefully make Eat Smarter better? Wow. Perfect, man. This I love talking with you, Pat, because I get to talk about stuff I usually don't talk about. When I first wrote Sleep Smarter, which it became an international bestseller translated in like 20 different countries. We just signed actually another translation deal, I think a week or two ago. And it did all of this crazy stuff beyond my paradigm at the time. But when I first wrote it, I was still running my clinical practice as a nutritionist. And I had a podcast going, you know, it had really like taken off, taken off. But I was like working with patients every day. And so what I would do is I was block out about three hours the first part of the day and just work on the book. And now when I'm saying this, I actually self-published it first. So I wrote the self-published version of it that way, writing in the morning, seeing clients and patients later in the day. And then that version of the book took off and then they garnered the attention of all these different major publishers. They went into a bidding deal, all that stuff. And then I kind of like signed like a free agent deal or something like that. Nice. And then I got to write the book that I really wanted to write. And in that I had actually transitioned. I was still seeing a couple of clients, but I was mainly just writing, working on the show and speaking. And when I made that shift, Pat, because a lot of us, we, we hang on, we hang on to every thread so that our current comfort doesn't unravel, you know? And so even though everything was just like calling for me to let go of my clinical practice, which I love to do, but I wasn't in love with it. Once I did that and just focus on writing and teaching and speaking and podcasting, everything just skyrocketed. And with Eat Smarter, I understood my rhythm. And so I'm a very much of the type of person, you got to understand who you are too. I have an obsessive personality. And so What I did was I just literally shut down everything else that was not a necessity. Like I would go to the studio, I block stuff so I could research full for a day for show content, record for a day. And then the rest of the week really was spent on researching and writing for this book. And that's not typical, you know, it's not normal or doable for some people, but that's how my life structure, I could kind of manage it, but I go really intense. And it's just kind of this framework of 
blocking off time, which you do as well for certain things on certain days. And it really worked well for me. So when you wrote Eat Smarter and you were like, okay, I need to go deep on this. Yep. I'm going to get rid of these things. What were those things that you sort of put pause on or blocked out so that you could make room for this? Oh, Pat, I love you, dude. This is like, I haven't shared this with anybody. I turned down so many like really cool speaking events that I normally would have done. I had to make tough decisions. You know, I did like have kind of had that delayed gratification, you know, and just like, let me focus on this thing now. It's really, that's what your brand is too. focus on this thing now, build this thing now so I can enjoy the fruits of it later. But the fruits, little did I know, you know, it'd be COVID fruits. It have little, you know, spiked proteins on the fruits. Uh, but it was so interesting because that's what I did. I was turning down things. I was also, we had just moved to, to California from St. Louis, which I don't recommend people move their family across the country while writing a book. It's not, that's not a good idea. All right. Yeah. So I did that in the midst, but all the while I'm starting to get invited to these different things, these different masterminds, all this stuff. I just had to really exercise that no muscle or at least not right now muscle. And the funny thing is like, there's an energy shift that took place because suddenly like the content that I had out there in the internet sphere, like now I had these, you know, quote, celebrities reaching out to work with me. You know, so it was just really weird. And I had to turn that stuff down. So it was just kind of like saying no to the things that were not essential. But all the while, we still have to have our monetary side covered. So, you know, I really, again, streamlined my show, streamlined our sponsorship, you know, working along, of course, with you and our mastermind and just keeping my mindset in the right place, you know, my email list to keep everything rolling. But I knew that I would have a little bit of a lull as far as our income while I worked on this project to see the big explosion later on. I like that phrase, the not right now muscle or the the NRN. I'm going to, I'm going to start using that. The, the NRN muscle. How do you turn down opportunities? Let's say, for example, you get this big potential opportunity, celebrity endorsement or get on a show or something. And you know, you're writing this book, but how do you know that that's not an opportunity you should say yes to? Or is it just like a blanket? Nope. Can't do it right now. If it's meant to happen, it's going to happen later kind of thing. This is one of the most challenging things for us to really accept, but this is a reality. Every time you say yes to something, you're automatically saying no to something else. It's just the nature of reality. We don't have clones of ourselves yet. So we, whenever we, we're doing something, we can't simultaneously do something else or at least not do it well. And so knowing that it's already coming into it, like I've made this commitment to do this thing, come what may. I'm working on this book and I want to make this book something that really stands the test of time, changes culture, is able to impact the lives of all the people that I, that really need it and give people a voice that haven't had a voice before, really help people to understand how their bodies work, which is crazy that it hasn't really been done in book form like I did it. And all of that mattered more. And so it's kind of like you have to come with something that is such a absolute hell yes. But until that point, it's a no, I can't do that. And this is a thing that we all have to go through. We compromise, right? Especially early on when we've got that bright and shiny, like different opportunities start to spring up and we see this and that. We can start to lease our time out and realize later that it wasn't an efficient or effective use of our time, but it still helps to develop us and grow that muscle so that we can get to that place where I really do think it might be an advanced conversation for folks right now being able to like, why would you turn that down? Well, I understand the opportunity cost at this point. And I wouldn't have even, you know, five years ago, I wouldn't have understood and been able to do what I did. 
Thank you for that. I, I want to talk just a couple more technical sort of in the weeds of the book writing process for you. And then I want to move to your podcast and your show and monetization because your show has been exploding. You're also doing the YouTube thing. There's a lot of components kind of happening on top of each other now. But you had mentioned earlier that when you were writing Sleep Smarter, you had written it self-published. All of my books currently have been self-published. I would love to know when you had now a publisher working with you, you said you had it rewritten. Was that your choice? Were they asking you, well, hey, we'll only work with you if you make these changes. I'm just so curious to hear because first self-published, then not self-published traditionally. What were they asking for? And what are your thoughts on self-published versus traditional? Perfect. Yeah, this is this is very important. When I first published Sleep Smarter and I just did the work, I created the product, which I really felt was a gap in the market. It was a missing conversation. And this is prior to a lot of folks have been exposed to it. It's a part of the popular lexicon at this point, different things with sleep wellness and the importance of sleep wellness. But this was like, you know, 2013, maybe uh, 2012, somewhere, somewhere around, I think 2013, when I wrote, wrote the first version of it. And I did the work really to just get the message out there. I wasn't thinking about, quote, selling books. And it was just a side effect. But we had sold over like 10,000 copies when I finally met with this literary agent. And it just happened to be these string of different events that that made that happen. And they were just like, what in the world? Where did you come from? Kind of thing. And so once they pitched it, kind of put into their channel, their funnel of exposure, we got offers from 11 publishers, including the big five. And some of them, like one of the big five wanted to just literally just repackage it basically and just put it right out. They just wanted to get it out immediately and keep that momentum going. But for me, I knew that the conversation was bigger than that. And I wanted to expand on certain things. I really just had this template. Honestly, I was trying to write this book. It was 20, is 21 clinically proven strategies, but I wanted to do that process within a month. I didn't know that it wasn't a thing. Right. And that's kind of like with with our friend John Lee Dumas, when he was telling people about doing a seven day a week podcast, we're just kind of ignorant enough to believe that it's possible. And so it ended up being like 45 days that I wrote it in, but it was just very punchy, very practical. But there was so much more that I wanted to say. I want to make it a masterpiece and a really, you know, a work of art and something that could really be valuable for years to come. So I went with a publisher that had the same vision you know, had the same vision for me and also had the wellness brand behind it. I, I, actually, I went with Rodeo, who's kind of like a wellness brand, like a major wellness brand in books. And now this is where we get in the conversation of self-publishing versus traditional publishers. I want to make this very clear for everybody. Right now, the publishing industry is very much like Blockbuster and Netflix kind of transition taking place. They unfortunately, don't even care much about you having a great product more than having a platform. And that's unfortunate that it's like that. And most folks, they're getting ghostwriters. They're they're not really even writing the books themselves, which is okay. But they're looking for people who have a platform just to move units, not necessarily have great works of art or great messages or things that are really high value. And here's the most important point that I want everybody to get. They need you way more than you need them. Just about everything that a traditional publisher can do, you can do on your own and you can keep your own rights. You can keep your own revenue. You can make the changes you want. Because I've allowed, I've kind of given away ownership of my own creation. It's like when Prince got upset that he didn't own his masters of his music. He changed his name, his every, everything. Like I'm thinking about changing my name. 
You know, I could be the symbol of, I don't know, maybe a muscle emoji, formerly known as Sean Stevenson, you know, just to, because it's like, it's this crazy thing where for me, my big, and you got to understand your own psychology as well. So the reason I did that was impact. I felt that that would be the best way that I can make impact the fastest. So that's why I partnered up with a traditional publisher. And of course, being that I had a platform and momentum, that's where the money comes from. And so they did give me a big advance, but that's not typical. It's rare to get an advance in the six figures and, and above kind of range, but it can happen, you know, but first you can get out and do it yourself because truthfully, this is the thing, it's an advance. It's still your money. It's like, you have to pay that back, you know? So it's still technically your money. And I would have made that money anyways with my self-published version and more and been able to do the things and make the changes that I wanted when I wanted to, which is when you're dealing with a publisher, they are not going to care remotely as much as you do about your product. Not even close, not even in the same stratosphere. Because what the tendency is, and I can tell you this, I've worked with several of these, the big five, like the, the best of the best publishers. And it's the same pattern, which is they care about your book and your product as long as it's business hours. As long as it's not a long weekend, it's, oh, long weekends, forget about it. You know, and my book actually, Eat Smarter came out over the New Year's and Christmas holiday. It came out December 29th. So it was like a ghost town and so many different things were going on at that point. So you've got to keep that in mind as well. Everything that you would think a traditional publisher can do, you can do yourself and you don't have to get a permission slip or to rally the troops to get behind your idea. So there's pros and cons. There's much, much more that I could share to unpack that whole experience for sure. Yeah, that's like, I mean, we could have a five hour conversation about that. And I have many, many more questions. Somebody who is in the middle of writing another book and making a decision on which path I want to take. So more on that later. Uh, that might actually be the first time everybody listening may have heard about that. So anyway, more on that later, I promise. But I think a lot of what you mentioned speaks to the power of having a platform. When you have a platform, when you have an audience, when you have attention, which is the currency that we're all actually shooting for online, uh, you have power, you have ability, you have options, you have more decisions that you have to make and uh, hopefully you make the right ones. And your platform that I know you from, that I, I follow you on, that I know you're known for is your podcast, right? The Model Health Show. It's huge. And I'd love to know how you do what you do with the podcast. I want to start with the fact that it is some of the most well-researched stuff that I've seen that's still entertaining. How do you bring information in a way that is entertaining, keeps us on our toes, and also provides the right information at the same time? What is the process for like an episode? Maybe it's an episode that's coming up. I'd love to know just how much time and effort you put into it. How do you do that because I, I I know you know a lot. <laughs> you, you can't know all the things you talk about. Like you've got to be reading off of something sometimes. I don't know. Get like spill the beans on how you do that because it's so informative. I love the show so much. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. For me, my process is simple. You know, I think that some of the most effective and graceful things that we can do in life and potentially successful are the things that just kind of fit with our character. You know, I'm a very logical kind of seeing is believing evidence-based person, which leads me into a tendency of, but that doesn't mean that there's things outside of that spectrum that are outside of logic that don't exist. But I'm willing to look at the data and I'm also open-minded just enough to be able to question things and to allow things in that other folks might not. So it kind of creates this little bit of a chemistry set that makes me up 
where I'm very passionate about learning. I'm very passionate about research. And so I spend a lot of my days reading through peer-reviewed journals and staying on top of, you know, right now I've been studying chronobiology the past week, which is essentially this rapidly growing field of medicine, looking at how the timing of things, you know, the timing of day when you take different supplements or medication or eating, all these different things, there's these little internal clocks in every single cell in our body, the trillions of cells that we have. And there's some fascinating things being seen in like cancer research, obesity, the list goes on and on. So, but I get really turned on by these things, but the average person, here's the thing in my clinical practice, I never met one person in the thousands of people that I work with in my clinical practice and also different trainings and live events and all that stuff. I've never met one person who didn't want to be healthy. Not once. There were people who there's a barrier of entry for them psychologically. They might feel that it's too hard. It's too complex, that it's too time consuming, that they don't have the resources. There's going to be a reason why they might not be the place that they want to be. I've never met a person who doesn't want to be healthy. I address those barriers of entry, which one of the biggest ones is complexity and ease into getting into the thing. So even though I might be passionate about understanding these various aspects of human anatomy, as I mentioned, I'm studying chronobiology, but really I'm versed in where I've really been pressing into culture is nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics, so how our nutrition affects our genetic expression. But how do we take that and translate that to the everyday person who just wants to slim their waistline or who just wants to be able to have more energy or fill in the blank? I know that a big part of sustainability is people having the education, understanding why, like a deeper why that they're doing the thing that they're doing. And so I'm bringing that into the conversation. So as I'm studying these often very dry pieces of work, these are written by scientists for scientists. And so there's not, and it's a language as well. It's like a foreign language to be able to decipher the meaningful portions. And I want to share this with everybody because I don't think a lot of folks know this. When we've got a randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial, like gold standard of clinical trials, finding the efficacy of, we'll just say, astaxanthin, right? This is a compound that's found in krill oil, this little microscopic shrimp. We get a study done on astaxanthin and we find it's like, okay, 40% greater improvement in cardiovascular performance, 20% greater weight loss in a controlled trial, whatever it is. And I'm just making these things up. But we find this thing out that it is incredibly effective at getting blank result. Even when we get that proof. It takes on average over 15 years for it to get utilized in clinical medicine. And actually a physician, a healthcare practitioner recommending it and sharing it with the patient. 15 years at the age of the internet. It makes no sense. We should know like yesterday, knowing that what I do is as I'm going through the data, I'm thinking this really, and I'm going to make this so simple. I'm constantly thinking this thing in my mind. How can I teach this? Right. So I'm just as I'm reviewing the data, as I'm sitting with it, I'm thinking, how can I teach this? How can I make the process of fat loss and metabolism? How can I make that like going to the movies? How can I link those two together? Right. Because that's what the process of learning really is. It's taking something that you don't know and connecting it to something that you already know. That's the merger. That's how learning really takes place, especially deep learning, you know, something that's truly impactful. 
That's what I'm going into with the process and doing it in that way. When you teach something, you get to learn it twice. So I'm already in the state and the mindset of teaching it. And so it really starts to become more embedded in my cells, you know, in my memory. And from there, you know, we're going into the shows and it just drives it further and further. So I start to become, I was just with this physician the other day and we finished the show. He, he was interviewing me and he was like, you're, you're a walking, talking, cool version of PubMed. And I'm just like, damn, okay, I'll take that. And that's the other part of the equation as well. This is so crazy. We still have to talk about this because marketers really tend to screw everything up, you which you know this. You know, we take something like this word authenticity and it's a thing that you do. Authenticity isn't something you do. It's who you are. And so I have to break through my barriers because when I first started in this space and when I first started, you know, going from the office, seeing clients coming in the doors to standing on stages to the podcasting domain, which for me, again, this is back in like 2000. 12, I think, not for this show, not for the Model Health Show, but I was the resident nutritionist, quote, resident nutritionist for this big online brand, this big online magazine. And I was doing their podcast first. They, they met me at, a, I was speaking at an event. And afterwards they came up to me and they, because at first, it, even when they met me, they were just like, you know, it's kind of like when you meet somebody and it's just like, well, you know, how important are you? So, which I should have caught that vibe then. But after I got off stage, I was like, that was amazing. You know, we just started this podcast. We need somebody to be the, the face of the brand. And I was like, yeah, you know, because I just started my website and I thought that field of dreams consciousness, which is like, if you build it, they will come and like all this attention is going to come. But we just had like a couple of hundred visitors a day or maybe even a week or something like that. But they had like a million unique visitors a month. And so I was like, absolutely, I'll do it. I literally said yes to something. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what a podcast was. But when I was doing that, and this is the message, I was speaking in a language that I felt was a little bit more appropriate for the audience, which is being a little bit more technical, being a little bit more holding back my personality, my tendency, which is to, I just want to have fun. I want to make learning fun. I want to make people feel really good and empowered. And so, but now I'm just kind of really speaking through this technical language, a little bit more vanilla in my approach. And I did that for over a year and a half. And that podcast had like hundreds of thousands of downloads, which back in 2011 or 2012, whenever that was, that was a big deal. But I was building their brand. And as it was going along more and more towards the end of our collectively, you know, going our separate ways amicably, I was more and more being, just allowing myself to be myself. I'm glad that I did it, but I'm a little disappointed looking back on it that I didn't do it sooner. Like, what are you doing? Be you. And part of it definitely is a fear of not being accepted. And we all have that to some degree, you know, especially coming from where I'm from. I grew up, the majority of my years lived on planet Earth were in Ferguson, Florissant, Missouri. The environment that I was in, which has become kind of infamous now, it's a very complex, volatile environment for many aspects, but also just beautiful people and a willingness and a wanting for a better life and coming up through a lot of fighting and a lot of, you know, even in the academic sense, being really instilled from an early age from my grandmother, the importance of education. And so I'm just this marriage of all of these different complex dynamics and working at a university for many years that really set me to it. And I didn't know what was happening at the time, but when I was in college, 
I worked at the university as a strength and conditioning coach. And I worked with people from all over the world, like literally from India, from China, from Germany, from France, from South America, from Canada. The list goes on and on and on, all parts of the United States. And I can see the consistencies in people. And I could see that we're all so much the same, but yet there's these little nuances. And so I bring that into all of that stuff to fully allow it to be present in the show that I do now. And it connects with so many different people as a result, funny enough. That's the other big part is not allowing authenticity to be something that we do. It's a thing I'm doing authenticity, but really being unafraid to be who you are. If you're super weird, if you're like super into, I don't know, like Pat's into stuff that people might think is weird, but it's just, it connects so deeply with certain people. You know, same thing with me. I'm a big fan of this superhero paradigm. Like I was just in there making my food and I was telling my wife, hey babe, you know, today's Robert Downey Jr.'s birthday. All this stuff, it just makes me happy. I don't know. But it's because there's a thread there, of course, in that superhero story, the rise of the superhero and, you know, the meaning, there's different layers there, but that might seem weird to people, but for some people, it's going to really connect and resonate. It's that more connective tissue. So we've got to be unafraid to be ourselves because the right people are going to connect with us. And the last point here with this is that what I really brought to the table that is still, it's changing now a little bit, but I was the only person there. When I started the podcast, I didn't have an email list for real. I had like 300 people on my email list. I didn't have all of the connections and all that stuff. If there's an example to follow and for you to really know that you can do this, it is me. It is me. And what I did was I just didn't stop. I kept showing up. Even though it was a hundred listeners, I was creating shows as if it was a million. And eventually it became those millions. But I kept showing up. My first guest, and I did a different little formula as well, which was kind of unique at the time. I would do about 50% of my shows would be these master classes that Pat's talking about where I'm sharing the definitive guide on whatever the subject matter might be. So maybe it's understanding type two diabetes and reverse engineering that and all the clinically proven stuff that we can do there. If you're on metformin, if you're on insulin, whatever, to help to normalize your blood sugar, list goes on and on. I do that kind of stuff, but then I would do like interviews as well. Some shows were just like people that just kind of do their show. And then there was like interview shows and I was marrying the two together. But let me tell you guys, my first guest wasn't the Olympic gold medal winner that I've had on the show before, you know, the Hall of Fame baseball player like Ozzie Smith or the top gastroenterologist in the world. Or my first guest was a medalist, but a bronze medalist, not just a bronze medalist, but in an obscure sport of synchronized swimming. Please understand, it doesn't have to be this like, as a matter of fact, I think you can kind of sabotage or handicap yourself going for everything that's so big and bright right out of the gate if you have to be ready for it. Every step along the way was just like really working those different muscles and building the brand as it went along and just creating a really great catalog after about a year of just work and giving, everything eventually took off. Yeah, and like you said, just keep going and allow for those opportunities to happen. Like you're saying, thank you so much for that. You answered a lot of questions that I actually had written down as you were talking. So th thank you for that. I, w I wanted to ask you for more moments that you've experienced as you've progressed and as you've transformed or mutated, if you will, from scrappy entrepreneur to CEO. What are some specific examples that you can remember that you had to make a decision that you know is like putting your big boy pants on 
business specific switching from scrappy entrepreneur to becoming a more pro? Going pro is letting go of mundane activities, letting go of things that you do not need to be spending your time doing. And it was a big challenge for me because being somebody who's a creative as well, even though I'm very analytical, I'm also a creative person. I want to create. I want to take that data and turn it into something dynamic and beautiful and fun. And so there were certain aspects like writing the show notes for the podcast. Every week we'd publish an episode. I would spend so much time writing the show notes, which still, even today, even though we might have tens of millions of downloads, there's not many people going and actually reading the show notes. Like really, like it's the, it's the highlight of the experience. But for me, it was like, no, I need to do this because it keeps me sharp and it's a muscle and, you know, only I could do it, whatever. Now I haven't looked at my show notes in years. And my wife tried to show me and ask me a question about the show notes like a year ago. And I was like, why would you even ask me? You know, and she's the one who had been pressing me so much to let it go. She's the one who hired the person to do it. And now going pro is focusing on the thing that you're really necessary for and outsourcing and letting go of the rest. That's a big part of going pro. And so it was challenging for me. There's still levels of it that I'm sure I need to, to work on. Matter of fact, I know that I need to work on, but like, I can't even believe Pat. And I think, I don't know, I want to ask you the same thing. Has it surprised you? Like all of a sudden, like, wow, I've got like a whole team. It started off as just like me and my wife. And then we had an assistant. And then now we've got like seven people on our team. We have like teams who work with other stuff. And like, I don't even know how it happened except going pro, letting go of things, up-leveling here. Because here's the secret. There are certain things that you might think you're great at that somebody else can do five times better, 10 times better. And they can just spend their time doing that thing where you might be pulling yourself away, you know, saying yes to something, you're saying no to something else. The best use of your time would not be on that thing right? You video editing or whatever the case might be. Not to say you can't do it. There's a time and a season for that, especially if you might not have the resources. There's always a way. But today we have so many resources at our disposal that can be cost effective. It might cost you a little bit of time to find the person that fits that budget for you. But once you do it, it can create a level of freedom. So that's one thing that jumps to mind right out of the gate is being able to let go of things and allowing my team to start to, you know, kind of grow around me. Yeah, that's a great answer. And to answer your question to me earlier, yeah, it definitely sort of, I look back, I'm like, whoa, when did all this happen? Because I now have a team of employees and contractors that we work with. And initially when I got into this, it was very much, I just want to be me. And the, the whole reason I'm doing all this is so I can just make my own choices and stuff. But you know, like you said, letting go of the things that are mundane or the things that maybe even you are good at but shouldn't do, it's been a world of freedom. And yes, it might cost some money, but money you can always make more of. You can never get time back. And that's something that's become very, very on top of my mind, especially as the kids have gotten older. I love how you had mentioned that your wife is working for you. How involved is like the whole family and what is that you do or, or, or are things pretty separate? All right, just to be clear, Pat said that she works for me. I work for her. I don't want. There you go. Sorry for that. You're right. You're right. I don't want any, you know, attacks happening behind me right now. We're going back to her. But, you know, so <laughs> it's an amazing experience because there was a time where, you know, I was working as a strength conditioning coach. She bought me my first health and fitness book 
I was doing a lot of research online, reading some papers, things like that. But it was like my, my birthday or something. She she bought me this book from Gunnar Peterson, who's this personal trainer, like super celebrity personal trainer. And I still have that book to this day. And now Gunnar follows me on Instagram. Now he's in my sphere. Of course, like we're going to connect and do some stuff eventually. But, you know, she bought me my first book. She believed in me because every week I would schedule my clients on this little rickety notepad. And she bought me these little fancy notebooks, schedulers. And every like year she would buy me a new one. She was like investing me in these small ways, but she was running her mother's occupational therapy business. And she brought that skill set over. And my wife has the same thing that I have, which is we care, full stop, actually. We care. It doesn't matter what day it is, what time it is. If something needs to get done, we'll get it done. So that's what you don't see with the publisher, by the way, again, you know, but you can still operate within their domain. But my wife cares the same amount that I do to make sure that we provide a level of congruence and efficacy and love and care and impact and all those things. So uh, eventually, you know, we started working together and <laughs> early on, it was definitely a lot more me convincing her to, to do stuff because we got to understand our personalities as well. Like I mentioned, my priority is like impact. I'm very much a growth driven person. I want to grow every day. I just want to get better. I could feel at peace when I lay my head down at night, if I just got a little bit better at something through that day. My wife's big driving force is certainty. If her certainty needs are not covered, then thinking about growth, that's just going to create tension between us. And so once I made a shift to start really focusing on addressing her certainty needs, like getting little stuff taken care of that, you know, I was off like, babe, let's go, you know, there's this event out here and blah, blah. she's looking at the budget like, nah, that's not a good idea. But I'm like, babe, but doing one of those things, going out to speak at this TEDx event, it was TEDx Sin City. So it was in Las Vegas. She was six months pregnant. We flew standby. So it was a friend of ours worked for the airline. So we had standby tickets, which means you stand by. And if they have room, they'll let you on the plane, which when we first got there, it was all great. Like we went in, got on the plane, went to Las Vegas. Getting back though, it was a nightmare. We ended up getting rerouted. We ended up in Dallas for the night. When we live in St. Louis, like it was a whole thing. But at that event is where the folks came up to me afterwards and asked me about being a part of their podcast. If I didn't do that, if I didn't take that strategic risk, I wouldn't be talking with you guys right now. It's that knowing, but also understanding your partner. And especially if you're working together, being able to address their certainty needs or whatever their thing is to make the thing happen. And so now today, once that happened, she pushes me. She brings to the table all these different creative ideas outside of our normal day-to-day. -day. So it's understanding that thing. And also the biggest part though is still, for me, she's the most important person in my universe. So having our relationship, we gotta keep that in context of the work relationship, you know, and not understanding who she is, her personality in it and my personality in it, it's not always perfect, but I've learned, <laughs> I've learned over time, she has a personality, she gets focused, she gets locked in, and she doesn't really want to be bothered. I'm the same way, but when we're interacting with each other, I'm definitely much more playful, you know, and just understanding these little things. So she's become a little bit more playful, and I've become a little bit more like, okay, let's keep the ball moving, you know, when we're inter interacting with each other. So I can go on and on in the dynamic with that. But ultimately, especially with the context of 
having a husband and wife working together or partners. It's understanding each other's personalities, each other's strengths. I'm not going to say the word weaknesses in context of my wife, Pat. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I would say that our, our tendencies towards potential negativity. All right. So understanding those things, I think it's always having that North Star. At the end of the day, my North Star, even though it's impact in the world and like I'm very driven to help the little kids out there that were like me growing up in a household where there's violence, where there's abuse, where there's drug use and all these different things and wanting to be free of those things and wanting to be something, wanting to just to have a level of safety. It really drives me. But that work starts in my own home. That work starts with my own child. I've got my two sons, my, my daughter's the oldest, but I've got my two sons. You know, my oldest son is 20. My daughter's the oldest. My oldest son is 20. He's in college. And my youngest son is nine, which is so weird. I know it's so crazy, especially if you see us all together. You're like, how do you have this college kid? Uh, but that's the other dynamic of the family situation that you asked about. My son, Jordan, right now, he's a personal trainer and he's created his own online courses. And it's so beautiful, man. You know, it's such a wonderful thing. But he also is a college football player. And right now it's just been kind of weird with him practicing and playing, but he's been investing that time. And he's learning from my friends in my circle, which is always helpful if, if for parents out there. It is like a superpower to bring somebody else a different voice because there's that statement that you can't be a prophet in your own land. And just that proximity might make it so your child doesn't necessarily listen to you like it's gospel. But, you know, if you could bring in another voice or in other voices. So I would bring my kids with me. If I'm speaking at an event, a lot of the time, more than half the time, I'm bringing them with me. I'm getting them airline tickets as well, or the event is getting them airline tickets. And they're going to be there and they're going to soak all that stuff up. The seeds get planted. But right now, the last part is he's doing that. But I want to share this, Pat. One of his clients is an 11-year-old kid who's actually, he might have just turned 12, who found him online. He follows me, you know, his mom like follows us as well. And it's an 11-year-old kid and he he's a cyclist, right? So that's what this kid does. It's kind of extracurricular thing. Like he's part of a cycling team. And so my son has been training him. This kid doesn't really get much access or the kind of relationship with the father figure that he would want. And so his mom shared that, you know, it really, his, his, his world is just really lit up when he gets to spend time with Jordan, my son. And so he asked my son, Jordan, if he would do a hundred mile bike ride with him for his birthday. And it's like some fundraising thing also for some mm -hmm. organization that they're doing this for. And my son said, yes. And I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> it's cool. But for me, I'm just like, a hundred miles? Like I, a mile is precedent for me. But he said, yes. My son is like really stocky and muscular. He's not a typical bike build, but he just rode 85 miles this past weekend in the training with this kid. He has that same thread of going above and beyond and loving more. And if we all could do that, man, we could make some really powerful change in the world. Dude, amen to that. Jeez. And every time I see your family, I see them on your Instagram stories and on Twitter. Like, they're just so beautiful. Anne is such an amazing person. And I had the pleasure of meeting her a couple of years ago at one of my events for just a brief moment. But I uh, hope we get to hang out more again soon. I want to finish off with one more question. I wanted to ask you about video because you don't just do an audio podcast. You actually turn on the cameras when you're doing it. How has video been impact wise in terms of the content that you're creating? And is it something that you recommend for everybody? Well, um, 
First of all, to answer the last question, no, I definitely don't recommend it for everybody. You've got to, it's not about comfort though, necessarily. It's about, for me, I'm a big fan of choosing a medium and then really working to dominate a space within that medium. So for me, it was podcasting and just audio podcasting was the big focus. And so for years, that's what I really focused on. And like I got onto Instagram super late. I got onto everything else late. So many people have invited me to Clubhouse. For me, I'm not one of those people where I'm just kind of getting onto the new thing. And I, I think I found about it like the first week or two. But it's just for me, I'm so focused on the podcast. And now my focus has shifted over. This is the beautiful part. When you really pick one thing and, and really get good at it and build an audience there, it makes the other platforms so much easier to grow once you shift the focus. And so now my focus has really opened up and shifted to YouTube in really big way. Like I've got some things in the works right now because I do have a level of comfortability with the space, but all the while, it was maybe a couple of years into doing my podcast, we started re doing videos of them and I just throw them up on YouTube. I didn't think anything of it. It was no fo intentional focus on YouTube, literally for years. We just put the video up when we put the podcast up. Some videos would get 50,000 views. Some would get 5,000. Some would get 200,000. Just a few, by the way. Most of them are just in a few thousand range, 10,000, maybe 15,000 average, which is pretty damn cool. But at the same time, the shift that's taking place for me is understanding that this medium, even though podcasting is gargantuan, it is huge. And the reason that I love it so much is that it's one of those things that people can do while they're doing other things. So you can go with people in their car, you can go with them on their walks, you can go with them in the gym, you can go with them cleaning the, the dishes. To sit and watch a video is a different domain. But some folks, by the way, just listen to some podcasts on YouTube or listen to things on YouTube. But for me, it's that thing where with YouTube, people are YouTubing things so often now. It's like the second biggest search engine, if I recall, or somewhere in that spectrum. People are YouTubing things to learn, to get content, to find out how to do things. And just the medium is just, it has a level of, it's so integrated in our culture as well. And so with YouTube, this is an important factor as well. It can't just be you putting your podcast on YouTube. Well, it can, but you're not going to see the same results because YouTube has its own language as well. Instagram has its own language, which is slightly different from Facebook, which is different from Twitter. YouTube is different. And understanding what are the things and looking at your metrics, how do you get retention? Where are people dropping off at? What's the best? Like, do you just get right to the content? Do you even introduce the person? Like all of these different things is a different domain. Because with the podcast, people are expecting to kind of sit with you and to be through a dynamic process. With YouTube, it's like people are YouTubing a thing oftentimes, especially if you're going to cold market. I'm loving it right now because I'm seeing some really amazing growth. And it also is another revenue stream as well that I had just neglected. What's the running joke that I need to stop joking about all the, the millions that we've left just on the table and actually given to other people, which is another, when Pat asked about the pro tip of going pro, you have to understand your value. That's another big thing because I've made so much money. I've made millions and millions and millions of dollars for so many other companies. And I don't have equity in those companies. I don't have da-da-da, but I was helping to build their brand, whereas I really should have been focusing on my own products, focusing on building you know, other things with myself. Not to say that I can't support and help other organizations, but I'm coming into it with a different lens. And of course, there's a growth phase of that because you might need to build your brand along with maybe you're bringing on your first sponsor and you're just you know getting a few hundred dollars. 
But when you really click into understanding your value and the value that you're delivering, starting to look at how can I have some long-term revenue stream coming from these things. So with YouTube, I didn't even turn my ads on this entire time, all of these years, because I was just kind of like standing up for myself. Like, I don't want to have this incredible video helping people. And then they're putting up a, you know, a Viagra commercial in the middle of my video. And that's just, honestly, it's silly at this point because 99% of folks that go to YouTube, they're going to click on a video and they're going to be ads there. It's just the nature of the universe. And also there's going to be something that's more primed towards your content too. So you don't need to get too upset or offended, but also I was blocking my revenue stream and that I can use and then to help to create with education for, to really accomplish the mission that I want. And so that's an evolution in thinking where I'm trying to like stop people from going to McDonald's. Like got my sign up outside, like don't go in there unless you have to pee really bad, then you could go. But instead of understanding 84 million people every day in the United States get fast food. How about I don't just advise against going to McDonald's. How about I find a way to work with the organization itself and improve the quality of their foods since people are going there, help to eliminate some of the most toxic ingredients that might be contained in the cooking oil or whatever the case might be. And the crazy thing is once I made that shift in my thinking, these companies start reaching out to me. Nestle starts reaching out to me. You know, it's just all an evolution in thinking and also thinking long-term, where can I make the most impact and where can I also bring in revenue, a return funds to be able to fund the things that I want? That's a lot, but I hope all that makes sense. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I love that mindset shift and there's so much more power that we have that we just have to understand. And I love hearing examples like this because this, uh, this opens up our mind. Right. It's like Elon Musk. It's like, no, you can't go to Mars. Uh, yeah, you can. <laughs> you know, it's right. just like, and let, let's go to first principles to figure it out and go like how you're going up the chain to people are going to eat there anyway. Let's make it great for them instead of just kind of complaining about it or sort of holding up a sign. And yeah, still making an impact in that way. But you can go much bigger by going a little bit smarter right? To tie it all back to eating smarter. Sean, dude, thank you so much for coming on. This was just a fun, casual, really amazing chat to get into your brain a little bit and the way you do what you do. It just inspires me so, so much. Might we be able to get a sense of where you might want people to go to get the book and also check out your stuff? Of course. You can find the book anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. We've got a campaign going with Target stores. A new one is about to kick off here. But when this is getting released, I don't know if the campaign is still going to be going but Target stores as well, which I'm really, really proud of because again, folks where I'm from, middle America, Missouri, Target stores, they can see this book, which with our campaign, it's like, it's got an end cap feature. It's a beautiful book, but also just getting these ideas into the hands of people who normally wouldn't get access to them. Very, very happy and proud of that. But also you can go to eatsmarterbook.com and we've got a mini course. There's 10 videos for when you get the book, when you get Eat Smarter, you get those 10 masterclass videos as well. And it's 10 foods that have the most peer-reviewed evidence for supporting your fat loss related hormones and enzymes. There's no food that's a magic bullet, but there are specific processes in the body that we've got so much peer-reviewed evidence now that we can support with certain nutrients and foods. So people can get that. And of course, where they're listening to this amazing show, they can find my show as well. It's called The Model Health Show. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate you. Proud of you for everything. And I'm just so grateful to call you, friend. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. 
All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Sean. Again, one of my favorite people and just such a down-to-earth, dope guy. He's just dope. I just could hang out with him all day long. And I know you could too because he's just that kind of guy. He's so cool. Family man, super nerd like me. He's into superheroes plus health and fitness. I mean, what's not to love? He's awesome. And he shared with us a lot of the things that he's up to that maybe you haven't heard anywhere else. So hopefully that's the case. I hope you enjoy this episode. Check him out, The Model Health Show and all the links. Also check out Eat Smarter, a follow-up to Sleep Smarter. So any guesses on what the third book's gonna be? We'll see. We shall see. Anyway, thank you so much for listening in today. Check out Sean everywhere. He's on Instagram at Model Health. Sean Stevenson, the Model Health Show podcast. And you might be able to find his book at Target too. And if you do, take a picture. Tag me in it, at Pat Flynn. Big orange book with an avocado in the middle. I appreciate you for listening in. Thank you. Keep rocking it. You're awesome. Hit subscribe if you haven't already, and I'll see you next week. We have a great episode and cannot wait to serve you then. Until then, take care. Peace out. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. Pay and download instantly. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. With things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Academy Sports and Outdoors has you covered from head to toe with the best from Adidas. From balls to backpacks and apparel to footwear, get a fresh Adidas look and gear up to get back to sports with Adidas at Academy Sports and Outdoors. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Crypto channel. I hope you're doing well. Guys, I have some very big news for you. Amazon is looking to hire someone with crypto and digital asset experience. I wonder why. <laughs> We're going to break down a few things there. And we have some celebrities, Busta Rhymes, the former hip-hop artist, as well as Ashton Kutcher. And they're talking about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and crypto. And remember, these people have millions of followers. So we are seeing, as we've been covering on this channel, the seeping of crypto into the mainstream. And different people are talking about it now. Celebrities, just the other day, we talked about Mike Tyson was tweeting about Bitcoin and Ethereum. So uh, a paradigm shift is taking place here, and it's happening on retail side, on the institutional side, and it's getting into the mainstream. And that's why uh, I'm so bullish on the future of this market. And so we're going to go through that. In addition, we have crypto lender uh, Celsius, um, Alex Mashinsky, who I interviewed just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they have made a huge investment, over $50 million in a Bitcoin miner. This is Big news. So I'm going to break it down. And there's news that Bitcoin adoption is up three times as much as it was in 2018. So 
it's in line to in what I was just talking about with celebrities and everybody talking about it. So we're seeing maturation in the market. So we're going to go through everything. Before we do, please go ahead and hit that thumbs up button, leave a comment below and hit the subscribe button. If you're new here, it helps support the channel and it doesn't cost you anything. Guys, this video is brought to you by OKCoin Crypto Exchange, which has low fees. You can buy your favorite crypto. Uh, they just listed Tezos and Cosmos Atom. So you can uh, buy your favorite crypto and don't have to pay high fees. Sign up, link in the description. Also, be sure to sign up for my free weekly newsletter. Uh, I have a newsletter going out tomorrow. You don't want to miss it. All crypto insights and knowledge. So Bitcoin, uh, if we look at the weekly chart here, we see a green candle, which looks great. But as uh, I've been saying, we have to be cautiously optimistic because Bitcoin could go back down before it heads back up to new all-time highs. And from a macro level, you know, I like to share these type of charts with you guys. Here's a, a chart, and I hope, hopefully it's easy for you guys to see it here, but um, we see the peak here that we're currently in, and we've had a correction, and there's still another run-up left, And as I've been stating to you guys, right? And why do I say this? Well, if you look at previous bull runs in the, in the crypto market, we've seen these uh, peaks on the way up and then a correction and then another peak and then you hit a, a, you know the the tippity top if you want to call it that or the top and then you have a correction and we go into a bear market right um, so we're seeing something similar playing out within the respective timeline and this chart here shows the different phases like uh, stealth coming you know when when we're coming out of the bull excuse me the bear market and we're going into the bull market then the awareness phase then the mania phase and the chart is indicating that we are in the the the, the start of the mania phase where uh you know there was well we're in the middle of the mania phase, excuse me, where you had this huge, huge run up of Bitcoin and altcoins and, and they hit new all-time highs and then a sharp correction, but it's not over yet. The bull market still has ways to go. Um, so this mania phase will continue in the next run up and then you're going to hit, uh, you know, kind of the blow off phase where you have that correction. So these are the types of charts I'm looking at. I'm not looking at hourly, daily, and so forth. I know I just shared, you know, from a technical analysis, but rather I just take a peek of, at those to get an idea what's happening, but I'm not hanging my hat on it, right? Like, oh man, Bitcoin moved up $1,000 today. No, um, zooming out and looking at where we, is it bear? Is it bull? Um, and is there another uh, run up in this bull market? And I do think so from the chart. So here's another chart that shows the historical patterns um, and where the bear markets are. And here, not a bear market, as, as it says on the chart, right? We still have another run up. And yes, there will be a bear market eventually. So that's why you should have a plan, know how you're going to cash out, how much, and how you're going to take profits, right? Uh, don't listen to people who tell you, oh, don't sell, you know, do blah, blah, blah. Do what's best for you and what your financial needs are, but have a plan, of course. Now, you can check out my cash out video plan in the description of this video if you want to get an idea of what I'm doing, and I break it down there. So guys, here's the big news that I want to share with you all. Amazon is looking to hire a digital currency lead. The successful candidate will have experience, or excuse me, expertise in cryptocurrency and central bank digital currencies, according to a job posting. Hmm. Now I wonder why Amazon is doing that, right? Well, 
you have to adopt, you have to innovate, or you will die, right? We look, I always give this analogy or the story of Blockbuster. Uh, they did not innovate and adapt to the internet and what happened to them went out of business. So every company now is looking at how can we leverage cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology? And I've talked about it. You know, Amazon is in a position where they have such a huge brand and customer database. They could create their own token, right? Uh, maybe name it Prime Token or Prime Coin, I should say, and uh, make it an actual crypto where um, it's on the open market, it's on the blockchain, it's distributed, and they may have to register with the SEC, of course, but they're at Amazon. This should be easy, but it would instantly add uh, significant value to their company, right? Because not only do they have their ways of generating revenue as a business, and then they have their stocks, but then now they would have a crypto. And I think that is a triopoly, if you want to put it that way, that... Uh, many companies are going to look into, right? These different ways of, of uh, increasing value um, of the company. So very bullish that they're doing this. Um, and let me give the details. Here's, here's what the listing said. We're inspired by the innovation happening in the cryptocurrency space on our end are exploring what this could be or could look like on Amazon. A company spokesperson told Coindesk, we believe uh, the future will be built on new technologies that enable modern, fast, and inexpensive payments and hope to bring that future to Amazon customers as soon as possible. The position based in Seattle, Washington, will work within Amazon's payments, acceptance, and experience team. The company is seeking an experienced product leader to develop Amazon's digital currency and blockchain strategy and product roadmap. See what's happening here, my friends. Uh, the biggest of the biggest here are getting involved. And as you can imagine, Google is not sitting by idly. They are doing some things as well. Uh, a couple of things. They, uh, uh, some of these companies had speculated that they could put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, but obviously they could build their own token as well. In addition, I think they're, they're definitely going to set up the on and off ramps in their ecosystem to be able to accept crypto. So I think for sure they're going to do that. And we're seeing a lot of uh, merchants and, and different services are being set up to, to do that. So I think they're going to look at, at accepting crypto for sure. But I, I think a big move on their part would be to launch their own crypto. Uh, you know, whether that happens soon or, or then later, I don't know, but it might be five years from now that they do that. Um, given that there might still be the need for regulatory uh, clarity in the United States before they do it. But all of these things are on the table. And, and I, I think, you know, crypto is here to stay, obviously. There's something else I want to share with you guys. And this is uh, Amazon managed blockchains. They, um, they, they highlight uh, Ethereum as an option for the ability for consumers to um, build their own blockchain. So check this out. This is on Amazon's website. You can look it up yourself. Amazon Manage Blockchain, easily create and manage scalable blockchain networks. So see what they're doing here and look at what they state in the first sentence. Amazon Managed Blockchain is a fully managed service that makes it easy to join public networks or create and manage scalable private networks using the popular open source frameworks, Hyperledger Fabric and Ethereum. Do I need to say more? 
Um, and they, of course, uh, if you click on it, we click on the, the hyper, uh, the link, I should say that that's, uh, Ethereum. It, it goes to a page on Amazon that says, what is Ethereum? <laughs> and it breaks it down the use cases. It says DeFi, non-fungible tokens, NFTs. Guys, I, I hope you see what is taking place here and you can go pull this up. I, I'm not sharing anything secret here. This is on the open internet right now, right? You can go look it up, but very bullish. And I, I, again, the biggest of the biggest here, right? And and of course, this asset class, this technology is here to stay. Now, moving ahead, once again, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the video, we're seeing more celebrities and influ influencers talking about Bitcoin and crypto, and this will help people get educated and, and um, learn about it if they haven't heard about it and get them into learning about it. So Busta Rhymes, uh, actually one of my favorite hip hop artists going back to the 90s, has 3.8 million followers. He tweeted, after watching the Bitcoin conference with Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, Kathy Wood, I'm sold on Bitcoin. Wow. Officially holding Bitcoin, looking into ETH next. And he tweeted that and, uh, you know, 3.8 million followers. So you got to You got to see what's happening here. Uh, you got to step back and look macro level. Now, Ashton Kutcher, he's been involved in crypto for a while. In fact, he did some stuff with Ripple back in the day. I think it was 2018. Um, he's talked about Ethereum and Bitcoin. Well, he, he had Vitalik Buterin um, here on a video, him and Mila Kunis, you know, posting videos here. And it says, welcome to Kutcher uh, Kitchen Talks episode one. Crypto with Kunis, <laughs> and he tagged Vitalik on it, and and let me play it here for you. Hey, babe. Yeah. What's uh, crypto? It's digital currency. <laughs> hey, hey, babe. Yeah. What's blockchain? It's like what information stored on. So like, it's you know. What information is stored on? Hey, babe. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's uh, decentralization? Oh, there's not one person in charge of anything. So it's everybody keeps everybody else in check. So there's not one big like unit or entity to uphold everybody to the same code. It's the people holding each other responsible. Hey, babe. Yeah. What's... Ethereum? So Ethereum is a yeah, general purpose blockchain. So unlike um, other blockchains like uh, Bitcoin, for example, that are just... Uh, See what happened there? And then uh, Vitalik is pretty much hanging out with them and doing this. But guys, I mean, Ashton Kutcher, 17.2 million followers. Uh, we are still early. And I, when I tell you this market is going to be the greatest asset class ever and the prices that we see now, um, guys, they're, they're nothing compared to what's coming. Um, you're going to see mass adoption. And remember, this is not a, just a USA thing or a Europe thing. This is a global asset class, borderless. You could be anywhere in the world. You have an internet connection. You put 50 bucks in Bitcoin. You're part of the asset class. 
So the it's unlimited what the value can be here because it's the entire world that has access to it, right? Because of the decentralized nature of cryptocurrencies and digital assets. So very bullish in my opinion, um, whether you like these people or not, whether you hate Ashton Kutcher, you hate Buster Rhymes, it doesn't matter. They have these followings and they're talking about it. They're talking about they're buying it and that they're on board. What do you think that's going to do to the people, right? That that are following them and and are like, what? What the hell? Buster Rhymes bought Bitcoin. Let me go see what this is about, right? Uh, very bullish, guys. Now check this out. Along the lines of adoption, Bitcoin ownership in the U.S. has tripled since 2018. A Gallup survey found. A Gallup survey found that the number of American uh, investors holding Bitcoin has tripled uh, in three years, while skepticism has declined. So as education and awareness, because of in part influencers is rising, people are learning and they're uh, and they're trusting it more and they're willing to be more open-minded and go read up on it and learn how it works and see what the benefits are. And adoption is happening slowly but surely. And that's why you and I, who are here early, even you know those of you who are with me since back in 2017, early 2017, um, and I got in in late 2016, uh, we are in the position, guys. Even if you got it in 2018 and 2019, the bear markets, you got you bought the dip. Um, you you are positioned to make significant returns here. So, very bullish in my opinion. Uh, check this out: Crypto lender Celsius confirms 54 million dollar investment in Miner Core Scientific. The announcement follows just two days after Core Core Scientific said it planned to list its shares on the Nasdaq via merger. Uh, I interviewed Alex Mashinsky, um, the CEO and, and founder, of course, of uh, Celsius Network. I'll put a link in the description for you to check that out. But um, he's obviously doing some great things with Celsius, and they're now mining Bitcoin, and they're investing in a miner. Uh, when I tell you there's a Bitcoin mining boom happening in the United States, I'm not BSing you. There's a lot of mining companies about to go public. They're setting up shop, and guess what? The United States government is allowing it. Whether you hate Bitcoin or you're a skeptic of Bitcoin, it doesn't matter. The facts and reality of the situation is this is a booming industry and it's here to stay. The funding is part of Celsius' planned uh, $200 million investment in Bitcoin mining in where? North America, not China, North America. According to the company, Celsius said the investment, which occurred during the second quarter, would make it one of the largest U.S. investors in the Bitcoin mining industry. CEO Alex Mashinsky described the deal in a Coindesk interview as good for our community. He added, they, uh, they core have a lot of assets that's safer than just investing in a DeFi project. Very bullish news. We're seeing the money getting poured into this crypto market, into different companies and the assets, all pointing to higher prices, adoption, and establishment and, and uh, uh, unlimited growth of this of this asset class. So guys, what do you think about this news? Leave your thoughts and comments below. Hit the thumbs up button, share this video, and I will talk to you all later. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. 
So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. With MailChimp, you get more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales with things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools. Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. When I'm out at the grocery store or maybe a restaurant or the park with my son, he's six and a half, people will stop us and mention that they think that he's handsome. I agree. They'll use that opportunity to chop it up with him, and often when they're done talking with him, they'll mention that they think he's a smart and engaging little guy. When those people walk away, the thought that comes to my mind is that I hope they remember meeting him as a child when they see him again as a grown man. This thought comes to my mind because I've written two books about race and racism in the United States, and this kind of work can um, produce feelings of pessimism. One of the things that I've learned is that Americans have an orientation toward progress. In this context, what that means is that we often celebrate the distance between where we were and where we are now, but that same orientation can blind us from the gap between where we are and where we could or should be. The other thing that I've learned about Americans is that we have a very, very narrow understanding of racism, mostly um, in, the, in, in the minds and hearts of people, usually old people, old people from the South. And this really narrow definition can constrain our opportunities to produce a more racially egalitarian society. We like to hunt for racists and distance ourselves from people who say mean things about whole groups of people um, or who idealize the 1950s. But the fact of the matter is, is that we might just need to look in the mirror. Now, I'm not saying that everyone here is a racist, but what I am saying is that everyone here has the capacity and perhaps even the propensity to live their life in a way, to make decisions, to rely on biases, that reproduce racial inequality. So people say, well, you do all this work about racism, what's the answer? And I say that the first thing we might need to do is to come to a shared understanding about what racism is in the first place. History shows that racists have had the upper hand in deciding who the racists are and what racism is, and it's never them or the things that they do. But maybe if we come together and come to a shared and perhaps a precise definition of what racism is, we can work toward creating a society where mothers like me aren't in constant fear of their children's lives. I'd like to dispel three myths about racism on our trek toward mutual understanding. First, it's true that the South has done its work to earn its reputation as the most racist region. But there are other states and regions that are competing for the title. For example, 
If we look at the most segregated states in terms of where black kids go to school, we'll see. Sure, some are in the south. There's some out west, in the Midwest, and in the Northeast. They're where we live. Or, if we look at states with the biggest racial disparities in terms of prison populations, we see that none of them are in the South. They're where we live. My colleague Rebecca Kreitzer and I looked at a standard battery of racial attitudes、um, of prejudice, and we found that in the 1990s,、uh, states in the South dominated the most racially negative、um, attitudes. But this geography has evolved, and things have changed. By 2016, we found that the Dakotas, Nebraska, states in the Midwest and the Northeast were competing for the most prejudiced population titles. Now, I'm not saying that one state is more racist than another, but what I am saying is that every state might have its own special brand of racism, and it doesn't have to be like this. Most of the inequalities that we see in our day-to-day lives happen at the state and local level. What that means is that we don't have to go all the way to Congress to make change in our communities. We can simply hold our city, our county, our state legislators to task to produce more equitable outcomes. Myth two: We're not that good at hunting for racists. Remember that time when the governor of Virginia did blackface, and people were like, "Ooh, that's bad. I need to get that racist out of here." I was giving you all the side eye, and here's why: while people were going back to yearbooks to look for things that were obviously racist, fewer people were looking into the current-day policy stances of legislators who probably did blackface but didn't get caught. So. How many of us might have supported a candidate who was willing to let neighborhoods secede from their district so that kids could go to all-white schools in the 21st century? Or how many of us might have supported a ballot measure that systematically reduced some groups' chances of voting? Or how many of us might have focused on the behavior of black mothers rather than doctors or healthcare systems and policies? When we learn about the huge racial disparities in maternal and infant mortality, it doesn't have to be like this. We could do something different. We could scrutinize the behaviors of the rule makers. We could orient ourselves toward a more just society. And on our way there, we can't mystify practical policy solutions. Myth three: If you believe That when all the grandmas in Mississippi die, that racism is going to go with them, you are in for a big disappointment. We like to think that young people are going to do the hard work of eradicating racism, but there are some things that we might should note. We know that young folks, young white folks especially, like diversity. They appreciate it. They're looking for it. But we also know that they don't live diverse lives. Research shows that the average white American. Literally has one black friend, and what that means is that most don't have any at all. Sociologists like Sadamayorga show that even when well-meaning white folks move to diverse neighborhoods, they don't necessarily have positive interactions, no less any, with their neighbors who aren't white. 
My research with Professor Christopher DeSanti shows that、um, when we ask white millennials their racial attitudes and policy preferences, that they're sometimes just as, and other times even more, racially conservative than boomers. When we ask them about the things that are important to them, they don't have any particular sense of urgency around questions of racial inequality. How do we get like this? Well, one of the things we might think about is how we raise our kids and equip them to solve the problems that we want them to to solve. We、um, we research shows that、um, white parents, in particular, will either choose to not talk about issues of racism to their kids in order to protect them、um, from a harsh racial reality, or they instill colorblind lessons. And that can actually reinforce negative racial attitudes. So it's kind of like how some of your parents might have given you books about puberty, so that they didn't have to talk about the birds and the bees, and then you tried to connect all the dots, and then you did it all wrong. It's like that. It doesn't have to be like this. We can do better. We can have hard conversations with our kids, so that they don't grow up like many of us did, thinking that talking about racism. Makes you a racist. It doesn't, and so that we can prevent them from making the same mistakes that we've seen in the past. Remember a long, long time ago, in 2008, when we were all pining to live in a post-racial world. Well, I say that it's time for us to think bigger and dream bigger, and think about what it would be like to live in a post-racist world. But in order to do that, we'd have to come together. To have a shared definition of racism, not just in the matter of hearts and minds, but in systems, policies, rules, decisions made over and over again to marginalize some people, and agree to become anti-racist, people who learn more and do better. So, we could ask harder questions of candidates about their stances on racial inequality before we throw our full weight behind them. We could boycott or boycott businesses whose practices don't align with our values. We could talk to our kids about racism. We could figure out our state's special brand of racism and work to eradicate it. People made racial disparities, and people can unmake them. Sure, it'll be hard, but the fact of the matter is, is that someone. Is depending on us to do nothing at all. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Global headquarters. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Jason Moser and Maria Gallagher. Good to see you both. Nice to hey, see you.、Hey. 
We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Elliot Brown from the Wall Street Journal is our guest. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the red-hot restaurant industry. Domino's Pizza and Chipotle both hitting new all-time highs this week after strong second quarter results. In Domino's case, Maria, it wasn't just that profits and revenue beat Wall Street's expectations. They continue to increase their same-store sales, both here in the U.S., and around the world. Yeah, I think you've said it best, Chris, which is to never bet against pizza. So, U.S. same-store <laughs> sales growth was 3.5%. International same-store sales growth was about 14%. It's the 110th consecutive quarter of international same-store sales growth and 41st consecutive quarter of U.S. same-store sales growth. What you see as well is that in the U.S., there was an increase in items per order. Internationally, a lot of growth was due to reopening. So, hopefully, farther down the line, that translates to that higher order. Um, and the thing with Domino's is you know what you're getting when you get Domino's, and you get it quickly. So their car side delivery consistently averages below two minutes from out the door to the customer, or you have de- delivery, and then you have autonomous delivery being tested out in Houston. So it's a good uh, it's a good place to get pizza, and pizza that is delivered fast, and pizza is always a good delivery food. So it's just another uh, really good quarter for Domino's. Well, and you and I were talking about this earlier in the week. There, there are always going to be people who will look down their nose at Domino's. But as you said, part of the success of this business is the reliability, both in terms of the product and the product getting to your home. Yeah, and it's pretty interesting because their growth in rural areas outperformed in urban areas. And so it's interesting to see, you know, that reliability even when you're going maybe a little bit farther. Whereas in urban areas like I'm in in New York, I can walk to a Domino's in one block. But when you get that delivery and it's probably a little bit farther away, it's that consistency and that reliability that I think continues to drive it. With Chipotle, Jason, the digital sales have been strong for a while, but it seems like part of the story with this latest quarter is the return of dining customers. I think that's definitely a fair um, assessment. I mean, one could look at these results and say they are the product of a very challenging quarter from a year ago, and maybe that investors should curb their enthusiasm. I think that's a mistake. I think this is a company that's poised to keep on winning. And Chris, imagine what happens if they actually mention breakfast in an <laughs> earnings call for once, which they didn't do this quarter, by the way, uh, but but to those numbers into the digital sales uh, that you were calling out there, digital sales grew ten and a half percent from a year ago, represented forty eight and a half percent of sales for this quarter. But if you look back just a quarter ago, it was around half. So it was a little bit more a quarter ago, but a year ago, digital sales were greater than sixty percent. So we're seeing that moderate a little bit. And that speaks to your point about people actually uh, being willing to either go back into the restaurant or pick up from the restaurant. Uh, but but all in all, I mean, comps up thirty one point two percent, restaurant level operating margin up. 20, up to 24.5%. That was double uh, from a year ago. And, and to me, this really is all about the opportunity because they're back to their peak $2.5 million annual average unit volume. Now they're gunning for $3 million. So that's $3 million on average per store per year that they're aiming for. Now, for a company that is still running around 2,800 stores or so, they see an opportunity for 6,000 stores in total. So, you know, you put the math together there, you're talking about potentially $18 billion in revenue based on those numbers in a company that's doing currently about $7 billion in revenue today. So, I certainly understand the optimism behind the stock. Yes, it's richly valued, but it's high quality. It's a proven operator with a lot of market opportunity yet to capture. Just real quick, and I don't want you to get my hopes up here, but 
Is breakfast a catalyst for Chipotle? Like, is that something they're considering? Because from an investing standpoint, we saw what all-day breakfast did for McDonald's shareholders a few years ago. It is definitely something they continue to test, and it's something that I think eventually will roll out. And it's just it, it represents incremental opportunity. If you can open your stores earlier in the day and get those additional sales, it really should do nothing but really boost that top line. Starbucks reports their earnings next week. That stock also hit a new all-time high this week. And you think back a year ago, Maria, every restaurant chain was struggling. A few months ago, hiring was a huge challenge for most, if not all of them. But you look at how Chipotle, Domino's, and Starbucks are all performing, and it seems like these three are starting to separate themselves and show everyone else this is what it takes to succeed, both in terms of hiring, how we treat our employees, and how we deal with our customers. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's a combination of all of those things, and it's food that's good for delivery. I think delivery is going to be continued. How a lot of people, if you're bored of cooking and maybe you're not quite sure that you want to go back to restaurants yet, these are good places to get delivery, or in Starbucks' case, to just go in and out really fast. Um, Chipotle as well, just go in and out. Even if you're dining in, you might dine outside. So I think it's just interesting to see how consumer habits will shift in terms of how much loyalty they have to these to these companies. Well, and Jason, a point you've made before, and I know Starbucks has lagged the other two, but the mobile app that Domino's and Chipotle have developed really is key to their success. I, yeah, I mean, there are just, I don't understand how any business out there today can't be focused on a mobile presence. This is just where the consumers are, and, and that is not going to change. And so the companies like Chipotle, Starbucks, um, I mean, Domino's, Papa John's, they had the wherewithal to, to make these big investments and to take this chance so early into the game, and, and it's really starting to pay off. Snap's second quarter included an adjusted profit that apparently no one was expecting. Daily active users are up, revenue per user is up, and shares of Snap up more than 20% on Friday, Maria. Yeah, so when you think about social media in general, I think the real question is how much time can people waste on these apps every single day? <laughs> uh, and Snap has continually proven that it's a lot of time. So uh, they reached nearly 300 million daily active users. Daily time spent on the app per user grew over 60% last quarter. Revenue was up 116%. Revenue is up over 100% in North America, 94% in Europe, 86% in the rest of the world. So people are spending a lot of time on the apps. It's an integrated part of their daily habits. And if you have those top 5, 10, you have Snap, you have Twitter, you have TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram, people will rotate through all of them throughout their days. Uh, on average, the, a user of social media spends over two and a half hours every day on these apps, and you kind of filter between all of them. And so I think that Snap uh, specifically continues to prove just a lot of people spend a lot of their time, and that leads to a lot of advertising dollars and spending on, on these platforms. It is interesting to see how this business has grown, because when they were going public, a lot of the questions were around the monetization. But as you said, their ability to not just help people waste time, but also to satisfy advertisers has been so key to their growth. Yeah, I am a person. I always say I'm an advertiser's dream. I get any targeted ad. <laughs> there's a 90% chance I want it, and I buy it. Um, and so you see in all of these social medias, they they understand your spending habits 
better than you do a lot of times. And so I don't mind it when I go. I know that there's a lot of concerns, but I like scrolling through the apps and seeing targeted ads for stuff because a lot of times it is stuff I want. It's not um, kind of something random. It's targeted to you, which I think is useful. Shares of Netflix down a bit this week after a less than amazing second quarter. Profits were lower than expected, but they added one and a half million global subscribers, which puts them somewhere in the neighborhood of 210 million paid subs, Jason. Yeah, I think this was a lot more of what you would expect. Um, I think from a company that continues to make just really big investments in content and, and to quantify that, streaming obligations now stand at just under $22 billion versus just over $19 billion at the end of 2020. So, uh, that's that's sort of the fuel that keeps this engine running. No surprise there. Uh, but, but you said it, global paid subscribers exceeded the guidance they set out last quarter. That's good to see. Always looking for management to exceed their targets. Uh, not so worried about Wall Street targets. Uh, they did acknowledge recent lumpiness for obvious reasons. Uh, Asia Pacific, believe it or not, represented the crux of the growth there in global subscribers. And average revenue per membership was up 4%, excluding currency effects. Um, I, I think really probably the biggest story for the quarter for for Netflix is this this investment that they're making in gaming. Uh, remember, they just recently hired Mike Verdu to serve as Netflix's vice president of game development. And ultimately, they view gaming as another content category, uh, something something akin to their expansion into original uh, content. And, and it's going to be something that's included in members' uh, subscriptions at no additional cost. It's going to give them the opportunity to test and learn there. And, and who knows, if it gains traction, then they can do more with it. But I think this is all really uh, pointing towards Netflix's ultimate aspirations of just becoming that modern-day, 21st-century multimedia company. Right? It's not going to be just video streaming. They, they really do have bigger aspirations. Coming up, a reminder that comfortable footwear can be rewarding for your portfolio, as well as your feet. Details after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Maria Gallagher and Jason Moser. You can catch Motley Fool Money every week on your favorite podcast platform and on radio stations across America, including our newest affiliate, WHTC in Holland, Michigan. Shout hey, out. Shout welcome out to, to the family. Welcome, indeed. Shares of Crocs up nearly 20% this week after the footwear company put up record revenue of $640 million in the second quarter. Maria, Andrew Rees took over as CEO four years ago. Crocs, they were at $7 a share, and today it's at $130. Crocs is a, is a shoe that I judge, but is a stock that I'm interested in. Uh, people started <laughs> buying these in the pandemic, um, and they have no interest in stopping. They appeal to such a wide audience. I mean, I was thinking about it. How many other brands can have partnerships with Balenciaga, Justin Bieber, Drew Barrymore, and Bad Bunny? So it leads to consistent beats on revenue, like you said, with the past year revenue or past quarter revenue of 641 million, which translates to 29.1 million shoes sold. This was their 17th quarter of double-digit e-commerce growth, and it raised its guidance for uh, this full year. So it's really an interesting stock, even if I don't, I don't think I'll ever buy the shoes. <laughs> The digital sales is is pretty interesting to see because there are 
companies in the apparel space that really struggle with that. And I think it's one more testament to Reese and his team that they've been able to do that with their digital sales. Yeah, and I mean their sales were up. 20, their digital sales were up twenty five percent. They are about thirty six percent of their second quarter sales. So they're a good portion of their sales are now through digital channels. And I think uh, the good thing is with Crocs, I think you're pretty sure you know what size you are when you see them. There's not a lot of versatility in what you're getting. Earlier this week, Zoom Video announced it is buying Five9, a cloud-based call center operator, for $14.7 billion in stock. Shares of Zoom Video down a little bit this week. Jason, are there people on Wall Street who think they pay too much, or, <laughs> or do they just think this isn't a good acquisition because of Five9's business? Well, no, I, th- I think it's just always the burden of proof is on the acquirer to really show that it makes sense. Um, and, and honestly, I, I look at this. The first thing I thought of when I read about this deal on Zoom's uh, investor relations website was one word: it was Salesforce. And so, I mean, I think it's fair to view Zoom on the same playing field as Salesforce with this deal. It certainly shows management's grander aspirations. And when you look at what Five Nine does, right? They run virtual call centers. They essentially open up the lines of communications uh, in into Today's multi-channel world. So, I mean, customer service agents can respond to inquiries across all platforms. Um, and, and really, it is, I think, ultimately about the market opportunity. Zoom definitely needs to figure out how to build out an arsenal of capability beyond its core competency. It's done very, uh, competency. It's done very well thus far, but they need to leverage that expertise in communications. And I think this is one uh, strong way to do it, frankly. I mean, if you look at the market opportunity, Zoom sees that total addressable market today at around $86 billion. But if you look at the total addressable market in this space by Salesforce's judgment, and Salesforce is a bigger business, they do more things, but now, all of a sudden, you're talking about a $175 billion market opportunity. So, there are a lot of dollars out there. Even just a little success here can result in some big, big numbers for Zoom. In regard to the deal, it's all stock. They're taking advantage of a strong valuation. It'll dilute Zoom's current share account by around 12.5%. But 5.9, strong business, 58, 60% gross margin. This prices the deal at around 30 times sales. That's pretty much in line with the way a lot of these companies are being valued today. Shares of Johnson & Johnson up a bit this week after second quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. J&J also raised guidance for the full fiscal year. Maria, this is one of those quarters where I think if you're a shareholder, there is a lot to like. Yeah, I think Johnson & Johnson is a company that, even if you don't realize it, it just touches your life almost every day. It had global sales of $23.3 billion, and that breaks down to three segments. The first is worldwide consumer health sales. That was up about 13.3%. That's brands we know and use like Aveeno, Neutrogena, Motrin, Zyrtec, Band-Aid. Then you have pharmaceutical sales, which are up 17.2%, and that's their largest segment. That's selling medications from problems like plaque psoriasis to immune um, immune inflammatory diseases, prostate cancer. And then you have worldwide medical device sales, which that section was up over 60% with everything from surgical vision to hips and spine devices. So, it's just such a behemoth and there are so many moving parts to it. And in this quarter, at least, all of these parts seem to be moving well and moving in the right direction. Is it safe to assume that uh, Johnson & Johnson is one of the companies that benefits from an increase in elective surgery? Because that's something we've, for all of the obvious reasons, we've seen a big reduction in that over the last 15 months. Yeah. When you look at their medical device uh, platform, you see so many things, a lot of um, eye surgeries, which I think is one of those elective surgeries. So, I think that, yeah, I think that that will help. 
Shares of Boston Beer Company falling more than 20% on Friday after second quarter profits and revenue came in much lower than expected. The company said sales of their hard seltzer brand, Truly, were weaker than they had projected. Jason, the stock's down more than 20% in a single day. How bad were the hard seltzer numbers? <laughs> well, Chris, you live by the seltzer, you die by the seltzer, my friend. <laughs> I mean, I am, I am unfortunately not surprised to see the market's reaction based on these numbers. Uh, I, I am a little surprised, though, to see these numbers. I mean, that's a pretty steep drop-off in seltzer demand, and we know that their business, uh, their beer business, has been having some problems for a while now. Um, and so, ultimately, what this boiled down to was... In, in, in they they thought there was just going to be greater demand for seltzer than then materialized. Uh, they had really uh, devoted a lot of their production to seltzer, less so to their other offerings like twisted tea and whatnot. And, and, and uh, you know, thanks to competition, thanks to the economy opening back up, people getting out of their house, less pantry stuffing. Uh, we just saw lower numbers in in the demand for their seltzer product. Uh, depletions of twenty four percent. Were down from 48% just a quarter ago. Uh, and, and they made some significant revisions to guidance as well. And when I say significant, I mean they took full year earnings per share uh, from a range of $22 to $26. They reduced that to $18 to $22. And they reduced that shipments and depletions number from 40 to 50% to 25 to 40%. You put that all together now with this sell off today, the stock is trading at somewhere around 35 times full year estimates. That Actually, seems pretty normal for what is a a high quality business with some powerful brands. I think there was just a lot of enthusiasm baked into that stock price based on that seltzer uh, performance that they had seen over the past year. And at some point, you have to be able to deliver those numbers. If you don't, the market's going to going to correct the stock price based on those new expectations. And I, I think that's just what we're seeing here today. Is there an opportunity for them this fall with uh, hopefully more people returning to stadiums for football games, or is that is that not anything they're projecting? Uh, I mean, I think there's plenty of opportunity as the economy continues to open back up. They have said the on-premise sites. I mean, you're talking about people going back to restaurants, games, and whatnot. That absolutely is opportunity. But it has the competition in the space has just heated up so much. I think that's going to make a big difference. Jason Moser, Maria Gallagher, we'll see you later in the show. But up next, Elliot Brown from the Wall Street Journal on the incredible rise and staggering fall of WeWork. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. I like beer. It makes me a jolly good fellow. I like beer. Oh, no, no, I never go to work. Oh, no, no, I never go to work. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. In 2019, in the span of just a few weeks, WeWork went from being the most valuable startup company in America to losing more than 80% of its value. How it all started and how it all came crashing down is brilliantly captured in the brand new book, The Cult of We, WeWork, Adam Newman, and the Great Startup. Elliot Brown, a Wall Street Journal reporter and co-author of the book, joins me now from New York. Elliot, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Let me start at uh, the beginning for you, which was 2013. You're covering real estate. You meet Adam Newman for the first time. What was your impression of him? Uh, I I was interested in WeWork because they were this this expanding office space company and doing co-working, and that was a, a trend I was interested in, and was immediately just sort of 
captured by how much energy this guy had and, and this sort of, um, you know, he was not the boring suit of a landlord that I was used to. And he just starts name dropping like Ashton Kutcher and Rahm Emanuel and shows me a video of their summer camp with beer and him like on a boat in the lake. And, um, it's like, wow, this is fun. Uh, and then the sort of other main thing that stood out, or there were a couple, but he, one was very insistent that like, well, you're a real estate reporter we aren't a real estate company. So why are you, I don't think you should be the one to write about us. Uh, and so that, that's one thing. And then sort of related, he, he just had this way of talking about the future that at the time I was like, uh, you know, he was describing how, when they open up in Portland in nine months, they w- will be full within two weeks. And he just say it with extreme confidence. And my thought was like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, that's a good business. And then afterward, I was like, wait, how would he know that? Like, you can't know what's going to happen in nine months. Uh, but, but in the moment I, I was really there. So I uh, know he's very friendly and gracious and, and, and you're really like, he was just so warm and that you can really see why people give him money. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reading the book that, uh, you and your colleague Maureen Farrell wrote was something that behavioral economist, Dan Ariely has said, which is how, Story is more important than data. Story has emotion, but data does not. And Adam Newman was really good at telling a pretty compelling story, both to his employees and investors, wasn't he? Yeah. And actually, there, there's a moment, we have an anecdote in the book where he says the quiet part out loud. He says almost exactly what you just said. Uh, and he's in a meeting with the CEO of Compass, uh, a real estate company. And he, Adam was just obsessed with valuation. And he tells the CEO of Compass, you know, why do you think your, your revenue multiple is worse than mine? Uh, like, why are you valued so much less compared to me based on your revenue? Uh, and he has them all go around the room and they each say something, everyone in the office. And then he just says, you're all wrong. It's because of my story. Uh, and he was right. Like, I mean, that is the reason that, that WeWork was valued essentially like 20 times higher than a comparable real estate company doing the same thing. And there is, you know, not to leap to Adam Newman's defense, but there is a, a, a pretty rich history particularly in Silicon Valley among startups, the whole idea of fake it till you make it. So, you know, early on, it doesn't seem like there were necessarily a ton of red flags. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's probably why they got one of the premier venture capital firms to invest in them, Benchmark, early on. And, and actually, if you go back, WeWork did have, WeWork's now known for just having these completely outsized losses in the billions, but they actually had a profitable year in 2012 by their own counting. And like that was the one of the things that attracted Benchmark. They're like, wow, this not only does this guy have a story um, and is just like this outsized personality that tends to be the type of entrepreneurs we invest in, but they also have a business that makes a profit. We don't see that very often. Uh, and you know, the thing that everyone was forgetting is that most normal businesses raise, like have profits. That's, that's what a business is. Uh, it, the, the issue was, you know, it's not a, we work was never something designed for venture capital, uh, where you sort of fund investment upfront in building software and then, uh, you know, reap the rewards later once it grows to a certain scale. I want to come back to the venture capital in a second, but first, one of the great things about this book is there are a lot of anecdotes about excess, both in terms of behavior, but also in terms of how money is spent. What was the first indication that you had that something 
amiss was happening, either in the business of WeWork or in the corporate culture? So the, the two separate answers. So the business was uh, that one was pretty clear to me where I was covering as a real estate reporter. And then I found out their valuation was like, why is it worth one point five billion dollars? Like, I know what a building is worth and they don't even own their space. And, and, and the, the, the amount of space that they lease should bring them nowhere close to one and a half billion dollars. Uh, so and then when you combine that with how they insisted that they were a tech company, and they weren't. Um, that that's where sort of the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, I get it now. That's why they say they're not a real estate company because they need to sort of have this story to get evaluation. And then on the cultural side, it was later, like after I was learning more and sort of digging in because I was really interested in in what this weird company that was saying it wasn't a real estate company was. Uh, I, I found, you know, just like started to come on these anecdotes of these stories of just all of the drinking and and excess, where you know they would just have past tequila shots out to the entire staff and like, cause that's the sort of cultiness of it where Adam likes tequila and therefore the entire company drinks tequila. Um, and, uh, you know, then, then I started to learn that like, they're this tiny series B company, uh, like meaning they just raised their second round of venture capital. And Adam was only flying private basically. Uh, and like the private planes are extremely expensive. Like a round trip ticket to Tokyo is like $250,000 in the plane that Adam would fly. Like that's, that's more than a first class ticket. So <laughs> Um, like that was another pretty quick sign that it's like, what is, what's going on at this really tiny kind of office space subleasing company that I, I'd like to cover. So one of the things that comes up repeatedly in the book is the idea of oversight, because as investors, we like to think that any business that we're investing in has adults in the room and has some measure of oversight, whether it's the board of directors or, or whatever. You mentioned Benchmark. They've got, you know, WeWork has Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, you know, the, some of the gold standard names that you would want to be involved with. And then SoftBank comes along. And I, I I'm, would love your thoughts on the relationship between Adam Newman and Masayoshi San, because part of me thinks, well, it could have been anyone with deep pockets to fund this company. But, you know, San comes along and tells him, you're not being crazy enough, which is probably not the advice that Adam Newman needed to hear. <laughs> so, so when that happened, the staffers who you know were around Adam a bunch would, and he'd meet with Masa, and then he'd come back from these meetings where where Masa would tell him to be crazier, and they would just like put their their hands in their palms because um, the, you know it's like Adam by his own telling is like crazy already, uh, and and then he'd be told you aren't thinking big enough, and they'd be like. Jesus, we just bought a wave pool company. Like, what are we going to do next? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that oversight was really lacking before SoftBank. I mean, you know, to, to be clear, they they did buy 42% of a wave pool company before SoftBank came along. They were riding private all the time. They just didn't own a jet yet. Uh, and, you know, then after SoftBank came in with all this money, they started to do really crazy things where it's just like, let's start our own elementary school. And, uh, you know, let's um, start, you know, Adam's mind went to, to a megalomania level where he's like, I, I could be president of the world and I can live forever. Um, and, uh, you know, I need to have eight homes. Um, so uh, it, I think SoftBank was a real accelerant. And yeah, I mean, it was the type of thing where I sort of initially came into this thinking, 
well, people who have billions of dollars are, are like, there's, it's not going to be as absurd as just like throwing money around. Like there's going to be more thought that goes into that. But I guess one of the main lessons is kind of at all levels, uh, it, it was so much more reckless than I thought the financial system was. I mean, it was almost always the case that you had, or, you know, at a lot of these levels you had at, at the mutual funds at SoftBank and, and the private equity fund, you had the principals, you know, the, the, the leaders of these firms in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Adam or, you know, three on three and in the room with him. And they can, within minutes are convinced to give an investment. And then they're like, okay, but we'll do due diligence. But then the analysts would come back at their firms and be like, this is a real estate company and it's valued at like 20 times a real estate company. This is not a good investment. And they'd be like, yeah, we're going to do it. Um, <laughs> so it, it was, uh, the, the process was there to look at it, but the, the decision had already essentially been made, which is just, yeah, like the, the, the recklessness was, was a, a quick decision. And then the, um, not reckless part of it was, it was kind of ignored. What do you chalk that up to? The idea that they do the due diligence, the analysts come back, say, no, this is a bad investment. Yeah, we're going to do it anyway. Is it that there's so much money to go around in terms of venture capital? Is it fear of missing out? What is it? Yes. Yes and yes. Um, I, and I, I, I think broadly what I learned, um, and, and, you know, this is not new to anyone who studied the history of these things is it bubbles with frenzies really just warp minds. And so they, they make it. So if you're an investor, it's a lot harder to have critical thinking kind of in the same way that like when a stock goes up 10 X, then suddenly there's more people that are, are thinking, Oh, well, it goes up from here. Uh, when, uh, like that, that's, a, you know, theoretically the, the worst thing you should be thinking after a stock sort of irrationally just jumped up 10 X, um, cause it's a lot more overvalued than it was, um, presumably. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that what happens in a bubble is, is people don't think critically and there might be all these negative reasons, but there's just one positive reason. And they, they, they zoom in on the positive and ignore the negative. Uh, and then, yeah, in terms of the FOMO, it's just, like these guys needed to spend money. So the, the example with Masa was sort of what we, in, in SoftBank, what we learned um, is he got SoftBank got its check of, of $45 billion from the Saudis or committed uh, in like November of 2016 in December of 2016 um, Masa Yoshison meets Adam and in 12 minutes on a high, like a pit stop on the way to Trump tower to meet the president elect decides to give him $4 billion. And so, you know, commits to the, the second largest venture capital investment in the U S uh, ever. And, um, like, you know, that, that's just, uh, I, I, I it, there has to be a relationship there between like, I just raised a hundred billion dollar fund. I need to spend it. I need to show my investors that I can get into big companies. Uber and Airbnb probably don't want my money. Um, or certainly not yet. So, uh, like here's this guy, he can absorb $4 billion. Um, and he seems to have all the qualities that I like in terms of just sort of like hard charging visionary founder who, who speaks really fast. Let's cut to August of 2019. WeWork's getting ready to go public. They file their S1 and then people actually read it, which is when the dam breaks. And this is something you point out in the book. When companies go public, there can be businesses that have their skeptics, but they, there will always be defenders. There's always someone willing to make the bull case for the company. WeWork's S1 filing comes out, and it is just blood in the water. I mean, Scott Galloway, Jim Cramer on CNBC, Matt Levine at Bloomberg, and God knows how many people on Twitter 
are going through it and just ripping this apart because they can't believe what they're reading. Yes, uh, that that was it's funny. Like I was on vacation, like I'd been, you know, we work with my baby and I'd been covering it forever and doing all these stories that, that you know, had not been sticking where I'd be like, it's it kind of looks like a real estate company and is valued like a software company. Uh, but then I'm on vacation and then like it, out of reception, they come back with to all these alerts, like suddenly the world gets it. Um, so this is the sort of emperor's new clothes moment or the, the parade moment in the emperor's new clothes where people suddenly start saying like, no, he's not wearing clothes. Like it's not a tech company because I think just, it was too absurd there. It was just like, he, you know, he restructured, this didn't even get pressed because it, it was, it was so esoteric, but like he restructured the entire corporate structure of the company to give himself better tax treatment on its stock options. Uh, he, uh, and he had a, a, a compensation package that would give him like another 7% of the company or something like that. If he hit certain targets, uh, these were things that didn't even get mentioned because there was so much, uh, he's leasing properties to himself, uh, or le leasing properties to the company and get the pay companies paying him millions. Um, so yeah, it was just like this endless parade of things you can write about. And, uh, then, you know, people rightfully also like had been starting to question why companies are, it just become routine to lose $2 billion a year before uh, going public. Like that, that, that's not like a normal thing in, in, um, you know, startup history. We were talking during the break, uh, look, this is two years ago. And I, I know a lot of people have short memories, but, uh, it is worth pointing out. I mean, I, I don't recall ever seeing anything like this before in real time when it was happening. The idea that they're going to go public at this huge valuation and in the span of a few weeks, it's OK, we're going to cut our valuation in half or we're going to cut it even further. And then investment bankers are basically saying, en masse, we can't get anyone to buy this and the IPO has to be shelved. Uh, these same investment bankers who, you know, one of them told him it would be worth ninety six billion dollars a, a few months earlier. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was just so extraordinary of a moment in in business, and and you know the, the market sort of came back with with a real fire afterward eventually. But but at the time it was, and for a brief while it was like it, it really iced over Silicon Valley startups. I mean, people had a ton of trouble raising money. Suddenly, all these um, companies that had been funded sort of with the same thesis of just like light money on fire to try to grow revenue. Uh, like they were suddenly told like, no, that this, this no longer works. This, this, you know, predominant thesis of the era is, is wrong. And so they suddenly had to just start cutting. And so like all of these soft bank companies were laying off, you know, huge chunks of their staff. Um, and it was, it seemed like it was going to be the end of the era or the punctuation on the era of startup insanity or like unicorn insanity. Um, but, uh, yeah, then, um, then the pandemic happened and, and things changed. <laughs> Well, just like Theranos happened, and we thought, well, we'll never have that type of thing happen again, and, and along comes Adam Newman. Yeah, though, I, I think one of the funny differences between Theranos and WeWork is, you know, Theranos was about a charismatic entrepreneur lying to convince unsophisticated investors, you know, like former secretaries of state uh, to, to back the company, um, whereas Adam was able to use truth, um, but contorting it uh, to convince sophisticated investors to see something that as as real that wasn't. So he taught sophisticated investors to, you know, look at uh, a real estate company and see a disruptive startup. The book is The Cult of We. We work Adam Newman and the great startup. It is already a bestseller on Amazon. And by this time next week, 
I'm pretty sure it's going to be on other bestseller lists. <laughs> I, I, I should give you the caveat. It's a micro category on Amazon. So we still need everyone's help. So please buy our book. <laughs> it's a fascinating read. Elliot, congrats to you and Maureen Farrell. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's nice work if you can get it and you can get it. Won't you tell me how? Up next, Maria Gallagher and Jason Moser return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Don't talk back. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Maria Gallagher and Jason Moser. Radar stocks. Let's get to them quick. Rick Engdahl is our man behind the glass this week. He's going to hit you with a question. Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at? Yeah, keeping an eye on PayPal, ticker PYPL. This war on cash staple has hit another 52-week high this week, Chris. Earnings coming out next Wednesday. They're pushing $1 trillion annually through their networks now. And I want to hear how many times they mention the word super app on their conference call on Wednesday. So, PayPal. Stock's having a great year to date, up 30%, doubling the market. I expect more. Rick, question about PayPal? Yeah, you know, whenever I have to use PayPal, I feel like I'm in a little time machine back to 1998. Just like the user interface that I come up against. Is is there anybody under 45 still signing up for PayPal, Jason? No, I think they're all signing up for Venmo. <laughs> Maria Gallagher, what are you looking at? Uh, so I'm looking at Squarespace, ticker symbol SQSP. They went public in May of this year, and together, Wix and Squarespace power 55% of websites that are built with a website builder. So I follow Wix a little bit, and I think it's important to kind of understand the differences between Squarespace and Wix and compare and contrast the two. It's done pretty well since it um, IPO'd or it went, did direct listing in May. So I'm interested in it. Rick, question about Squarespace? I am actually a Squarespace customer. I have a couple of websites that I haven't updated in a couple of years, but I'm still paying for them. I'm wondering how many more customers like me are out there. How much do they depend on dormant sites? Interesting. It's uh, like gyms. How many people are paying for memberships even though they never step foot into a gym? That's something I'll look out for. Rick Engdahl, you got one of those two stocks you want to add to your watch list? To be honest, they're, I, I own shares of both of them already, so you both win. <laughs> All right. Yay, I'll Good take enough. it. <laughs> Ray Gallagher, Jason Moser, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Tonight from the Tokyo Olympics, let the games finally begin. After a year of delays and disappointment, their faces say it all. Athletes from more than 200 countries at the opening ceremony. Tens of thousands of empty seats, but emotional moments for American parents watching at home. 
COVID and sweltering heat among the challenges with a big weekend ahead for Team USA, the athletes to watch. The new COVID wave in more cities cracking down, now mandating masks in schools. Some bars and gyms now requiring vaccinations. Alabama's Republican governor begging people to get the shot, saying the unvaccinated are letting us down. The manhunt in Washington, D.C. after gunmen opened fire on a street packed with people. The country reeling from gun violence. A new name for Cleveland's Major League Baseball team. They'll now be called the Guardians. A powerful moment as search and rescue teams are saluted as they leave the Surfside site one month after the deadly collapse. Record prices for homes in a red-hot market. What to know if you're buying or selling. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Reporting tonight from Tokyo. Hello, everyone. A view of the Rainbow Bridge across northern Tokyo Bay on a new day in and for Tokyo. A palpable sigh of relief here as the pandemic-delayed 2020 Summer Games finally begin in this summer of 2021. It's early Saturday morning on this side of the world. Full competition getting underway and the first medals to be awarded later today. But perhaps no athletic achievement can match the monumental lift organizers here faced in staging these games in the teeth of a raging pandemic. A struggle reflected in the opening ceremony, the start of a worldwide gathering unmatched in the COVID era. The city still very much in the grips of rising infections, the virus looming over these games. For athletes, however, none of it changes what brought them here, the quest for Olympic medals. A major concern here in Tokyo, the same as in the U.S., soaring COVID cases and not enough people vaccinated. The number of Americans at least partially protected now, over 187 million, but only inching up as cases climb. Here's Miguel Almaguer. As more help arrives at hard-hit hospitals in cities like Springfield, Missouri, tonight across the country, growing frustration from those on the front lines of a pandemic that should not be spiraling out of control again. That's a little like being on the Titanic and uh, offering people lifeboats and having them, uh, you know, repeatedly turn you down. With stressed medical centers facing another influx of hospitalizations and deaths, preventable infections are climbing in every state. The CDC director calls this a pivotal moment as more Republicans, including the governor of Alabama, say it's the high number of unvaccinated pushing the nation towards crisis. What is it going to take to get people to get shots in arms? I don't know. You tell me. I've done all I know how to do. I can encourage you to do something, but I can't make you take care of yourself. In Nevada, authorities are also baffled as COVID wards fill up and vaccination sites sit empty. If you are dying today in America from COVID, it's because essentially you're unvaccinated. Why would you want to die? 33-year-old Kathleen Cruz nearly did die telling us she's still not sure about getting vaccinated. I don't want to be, I don't want to just jump into something not being 100% sure about it. All right, one, two, three. In the past seven days, two million more Americans were finally vaccinated. And they didn't know if he was going to make it or not. Michelle Geiger almost lost husband Randy to COVID and now regrets their decision not to get vaccinated sooner. When you have to go on the vent, or you get put in the hospital or ICU and you get segregated from your family because they can't get to you. 
that's all the answer that you need on vaccination. Tonight, a life-saving vaccine offering a shot of hope for families everywhere. 20% of all new cases here in L.A. County are actually breakthrough infections, but officials stress those people are hardly ever hospitalized. Lester? And Miguel, I know more school districts have announced mask mandates. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. Atlanta, Chicago, Boston, and Los Angeles all saying when students return, they'll need to have masks. Lester? All right, Miguel, thank you. And make a plan for where to get vaccinated. Visit planyourvaccine.com for more. Let's turn now to America's crime wave and the manhunt for two suspects in Washington, D.C. after a shooting had outdoor diners ducking for cover. Here's Tom Costello. On the streets of Washington, a burst of gunfire, restaurant customers running for cover, two victims down, one thought to be targeted, the other an innocent bystander. Both survived. Police say the suspects seen jumping into a getaway car are still missing. Across the street from the restaurant, the evidence is still on the street. The broken glass, the green police evidence paint, the blood, and the bandages medics used to save the victims. Like many cities across the country this summer, Washington is reeling from gun violence. Over the weekend, baseball players and fans ran for cover after a shooting near Nationals Ballpark. A six-year-old killed in an unrelated drive-by. Murders in D.C. are up 2% so far this year after a dramatic 19% jump last year. I see people doing violent crimes, and I see them back in my community months later. And that is, it breaks my heart. The police chief walking the neighborhood today. I've been talking to residents along the way, and people are really mad as hell right now. And I don't blame them. I am too. It's happening nationwide. Philadelphia on pace for its most murders ever. Jackson, Mississippi likely to set another homicide record. Portland, Oregon reporting an epidemic of gun violence. The attorney general in Chicago where 56 people were shot, 11 killed last weekend. We launched five uh, anti-gun trafficking task forces. What's behind the surge? Experts cite the pent-up frustration over COVID. More guns, fewer cops and releasing nonviolent suspects without making them post bail. All of that helping to fuel America's summer of violence. Tom Lester. Costello tonight. Thank you, Tom. In just 60 seconds, how to deal with record home prices and the price you pay. And more from here in Tokyo. After decades of criticism from Native American groups today, Cleveland's baseball team changed its name, the la latest major sports team to do so. Here's Gabe Gutierrez. And the game. In a video narrated by Tom Hanks, we are all Cleveland Guardians. Cleveland's baseball team announced it will now be known as the Guardians starting next season. Indians will always be part of our history, just as Cleveland has always been the most important part of our identity. The new name, a reference to large Art Deco statues on Cleveland's Hope Memorial Bridge, the team's first name change in more than a century. Well, that's sad. You know, I, I've known them as the Indians forever. I'm all for it. It was, it was going to happen. I think that probably most of the fans would have preferred to have kept Indians. I know I would have. The move, part of a larger cultural shift across the country. The NFL's Washington football team also announced last year it was changing its name, although it hasn't said to what. We're just a better place to not have those kinds of names. They need to be relegated to the dustbin of history. Tonight, the Oneida Nation says it hopes that other sports teams follow suit, Lester.
Gabe Gutierrez, thank you. These are tough times for people shopping for a home, as you may have already discovered. The cost is going through the roof, as there are a lot more buyers than sellers. Our Stephanie Rule has tonight's Price You Pay. Real estate agent Kim Reedy says it's been a while since she's seen a market this hot for this long. The demand's much higher than it's ever been, which is just creating these crazy bidding wars. The median price for existing homes skyrocketed in June, hitting an all-time high of more than $363,000, up 23% from last year. And the number of existing homes sold is up, too, after four straight months of declines. Those high prices sending some first-time home buyers to smaller markets. When you think about second, third-tier cities, are they making a comeback, seeing that real estate is so expensive all over the place? Yeah, this is the unique thing about today's market compared to a few years ago. It used to be just coastal cities, those expensive tech hubs like San Francisco and Seattle were really the hot markets. We're seeing it everywhere now. And homes are selling quickly across the board. In June, nearly 90% scooped up within a month. We could see some relief towards the end of the year, but right now, just have patience in that home buying process. Some of the signs that point to that relief, lumber prices are falling, new homes are being built, and those existing home sales are increasing inventory. Stephanie Rule, NBC News. In Surfside, Florida today, the search and recovery effort ended at the collapsed condo site with a salute to the first responders who worked around the clock for nearly a month. Carrie Sanders is there. After 29 tireless days in Surfside, Florida, a salute to the urban search and rescue teams now leaving. This mission occurred in our backyard. There is no leaving it behind. Stephanie Palmer says her heart is heavy from the loss of so many. You're about rescues. In this case, it turned into mostly recovery. What has that been like for you? It was difficult because we knew that there would be a transition with this and he never stopped working. One boy rescued, 97 recovered. Estelle Hedea still missing. We like to go to something and know that we 100% completed the mission at task and our heart goes out to them and I wish we had better news. The site now turned over to police investigators as these heroes head home. Kerry Sanders, NBC News, Surfside, Florida. Up next for us tonight, men and women who soar what ties Olympians and astronauts? They've made it to the very top, Olympic athletes and astronauts. Stephanie Goss spoke with some aboard the International Space Station about what they share. The space station brings countries together. The Olympics brings countries together. Do you all see a connection between what you're doing in space and what's going to be happening in Tokyo? Uh, you have uh, lots of countries that are united here in a, in a, with a common goal, uh, which is peaceful, which is trying to bring the countries together. That's what athletes do as well. They're, they're trying to represent their countries. So I, I think we have that in common. Another thing they have in common with Olympians, a strict workout regimen. I tell family members, hey, we're working out for a couple hours every day. They think, wow, you're going to be super duper fit. Mainly, we're mimicking the activities that we're not normally doing that people do every day on Earth. Is there one person among you who's kind of the motivator to get moving? Well, I would say Mark. I make sure I don't yell at everybody and bang on the doors to get out of bed and make them do push-ups as soon as they roll out. But they plan on taking some time to kick back and watch the athletes. Certainly ask Mission Control to have that piped up. What do you hope that the games will bring to the world and and what's your what's your message
I think uh, people coming together to particip participate in an event like this is something that brings hope and enthusiasm. I think uh, this event will bring hope, uh, not just to the space station or uh, Japan, Tokyo, to the world. Stephanie Gosk, NBC News. Quite a perspective. That's nightly news for this Friday. Be sure to watch the opening ceremony tonight at 7.30 Eastern here on NBC. I'll see you back here tomorrow night. Thank you for watching, everyone. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. Hey, NBC News viewers, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.